Psalm 100, a psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Let's pray together. Father, now uh, we take these few moments and we pray that you would make much of them. Uh, Lord, we've already marveled and seen you save sinners. And Father, we pray uh, this morning that indeed that would be the case uh, again. And that, Father, you would use your word to strengthen and encourage your people. For we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 100 is one of the best-known and oft-sung psalms in the entire Psalter. This particular psalm has played a central part in the liturgy of God's people in the English-speaking world. Psalm 100 holds a prominent place in the Book of Common Prayer, as well as in the Anglican, Methodist, and Presbyterian hymnals of the 18th and 19th century. If we had been a part of the British Navy during the Napoleonic Wars, two things we could have been sure to hear each and every Sunday when we were at sea and the ship was rigged for church we would have heard the articles of war read aloud, and we would have sung together Psalm 100, lovingly known as the Old 100th. As we get into this particular psalm, we quickly see why it holds such a central place in the church's heart and in her liturgy. In verses 1 to 4 of Psalm 100, we're given a barrage of commands. But we soon understand that those commands are invitations into a relationship with God himself. It's a relationship that's characterized by joy and gladness. It's a relationship where we know God and are known by God. So let's begin this morning then by asking ourselves this particular question question. Are the relationships in your life characterized by joy and gladness? How about the relationships that are most important to you? Your spouse? Your children, be they young, teenager, adults? How about your relationships with your siblings? Your friends? I realize thinking that all of our relationships should have some characteristic of joy and gladness might be a sort of a high bar to set. So let's just ask it this way. Do you really feel known in the myriad of relationships that you have? Do you feel like you know the people who are important to you? Well, friends, understand that what God offers us through the psalmist in Psalm 100 is a relationship with him that's marked by joy 
and gladness. And he holds out to us the possibility, not just that we can know God, but to know that God knows us as we truly are. Now, in your bulletin this morning, on page five, you'll see an outline for our time together. And you'll also then note the big idea. The big idea, or hopefully what the sermon is about in one sentence, is this. The goodness, hesed, and faithfulness of God demand proper response. The goodness, hesed, and faithfulness of God demand proper response. So, uh, two points we want to make this morning. First, we need to give the Lord what He deserves. We need to give the Lord what He deserves. Right away, the psalmist begins with a command. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Not just make a joyful noise to the Lord, you His people, but that all of the created order should be making a joyful noise unto the Lord. And let's note, don't gloss over the fact that the psalmist says the noise we are to make is a joyful noise. Not a glad noise. He's going to come to gladness. Not a happy noise, but a joyful noise. And that's important. It's important because happiness, generally speaking, is dependent on our circumstances. August 28th, some of us will come into church very happy. If Nebraska handles business and beats Northwestern, we will come to church the next Sunday morning as a happy gathered group of Husker fans. If they lose, probably not so much. But friends, the call of the psalmist is not to make to the, the Lord a happy noise, but to make to the Lord a joyful noise. In other words, we're talking about something that transcends our circumstances. We're talking about something that doesn't have anything to do with what's going on in our life. See, joy has nothing whatsoever to do with scores of our favorite sports teams or how particular relationships are going in your life or how work is going, or how your relationship is with your spouse or with your kids, how your fantasy football team is faring, none of that matters. Joy is something that transcends the situation in life in which we find ourselves. We see this in the book of Acts over and over again. Paul and Silas are beaten they're wrongfully imprisoned. They're put in jail. And what do they do in Philippi? They sing. They're not singing the blues. They're not singing some sort of version of Merle Haggard's Mama Tribe. No, they're making a joyful noise to the Lord. When I was in college, uh, Stephen Curtis Chapman was a very famous uh, Christian artist and musician, songwriter. He had a wonderful song uh, entitled, What Kind of Joy Is This? And that's what the psalmist is inviting us to. 
a life of joy, not happiness, but a life characterized by joy. The second invitation, then, is that we are to serve him. It's not just that the Lord wants us as his cheerleaders, but he wants to use us. Now, please note, he doesn't have to use us. He doesn't need us. But the covenant God of Israel has a plan and a purpose for his people. There is a meaning to their life. They weren't just wandering around the desert for 40 years because God wasn't sure where he was going to settle them. Every bit of their history served a particular purpose. Every aspect of their life as a people pointed to God's redemptive work and plan through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, we're not just those who give God praise, but we're also servants. He calls us to serve him. He calls us as his people to be his hands and to be his feet. We are sent on an errand, as it were, by the great king. We do so bearing his seal and bearing his authority. It's a wonderful kind of relationship that we have, not just that we praise him, but that praise then in turn is used to a great end. God desires us to serve him. He will use us to his ends and to his purposes. Now, serving the great king in the midst of a world and in the midst of a culture and an environment that is dead set on rebelling against that king is tiresome work. It'll beat you up and wear you out. It will have you singing Merle Haggard songs. And so verse, the second half of verse 2 is again a wonderful and a gracious invitation. We're asked to come into his presence. Not to come with our head down and our tail tucked between our legs. But we're invited to come into his presence with singing. I've mentioned this particular individual before, uh, reading his book, Born Again. If, if you're a Christian and you've not read it, I, I would just encourage you. I think every believer should read uh, Chuck Colson's wonderful autobiography called Born Again. Uh, it's, it's a marvelous testimony of God's grace and of just the kind of arrogance and hubris that human beings are, are possible uh, or capable of. Uh, someone asked Chuck Colson in the intermediate time after Watergate, hey, if you knew that what you were being asked to do was wrong, like why, why did y'all, why did you keep doing it? I mean, why, why, why not just walk away? And Colson responded once in an interview. He said, you have no idea what a huge high it is to know that you have been summoned to the Oval Office. Not just a meeting in the basement of the White House. Not just you're taking a tour. But when I would get a phone call and the secretary would say, Mr. Colson, 
Mr. Nixon needs to see you immediately. And I would go and I was expected and I would pass everybody and everything and I would go right into the very seat of power. Friends, what God invites us to is so much greater in the second half of verse 2. You're not going to the White House. You're invited into the very presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You're invited into the very presence of the one, as we're going to see, who made everything. And again, the invitation is to come singing as we do. Thirdly, we're invited to know that the Lord is God. Now, that's an interesting statement. It needs a little bit of unpacking. Please note it's in all, it's in all caps. So that's the word Yahweh. That's the covenant name for God. So in other words, know that the one who has made a covenant with his people alone is God. He made us. We are his. He's the creator. But not only is he the creator, but he's the one who cares for and looks after his people. That's the second, that's the very end there, verse 3. We are his people. We are the sheep of his pasture. Yes, God is the creator. Yes, God is the ancient of days. Yes, God is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. But he's also your shepherd. He's also the one who knows you. He's also the one who looks after and cares for you. He knows things about you that you don't even know about you. And he loves you just the same. It's stunning that God invites us not only to know who he is, but he wants us to know that in that relationship, he knows who we are. And he loves us still. He sent his son to die for us still. When we don't know how to pray, the Spirit of God intercedes on our behalf. Friends, it is stunning that we are invited to know the Lord and to know that not only is he our creator, but he's the one who cares and watches over and tends us. Verse 4 then makes perfect sense. When we put all those things together, we want to come into his presence and we'll do so with thanksgiving and with praise. We will bless him. Now, verse 4 is really interesting in the sense that when, it, when uh, the psalmist says, enter his gates with thanksgiving, remember all these psalms that we've been looking at from Psalm 93 onward, these are all post-exilic psalms. So in other words, the psalmist is saying to people who used to have a temple, but it's now been destroyed, and they used to live in Jerusalem or in Israel, but now they're scattered throughout the four corners of the earth. He's saying to those people, hey, 
I want you to go to a place that doesn't exist anymore and do something that you can't really do. Now, that's just mean. So when the psalmist says in verse 4, enter his gates with thanksgiving. Oh, you mean the gates that the Babylonians tore down and destroyed. And his courts. Oh, the same courts that got, again, just completely up. up. I mean, they just they burned the whole thing to the ground. There's nothing left. What does that even mean? Well, verse 4 points us to the passage that Abby read for us this morning. You see, when God calls us to enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise, it's not something that's tied to Jerusalem. It's not something that's tied to the temple. Rather, this is a great eschatological invitation. He's inviting us to the scene that we saw in the book of Revelation. There's no temple in the new Jerusalem. There's Its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. But note what we read in Revelation chapter 21, verse 27. Nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. When God says, enter my gates with thanksgiving, enter my courts with praise, he's inviting us to the salvation and the cleansing that only the Lamb of God brings. He's inviting us to be those who, when everything is done, everything is finished, everything is completed, after Christ has returned again, he's inviting us to be those who can come and be in his very presence. And there, we will give thanks to him, and we will bless his name. That is our rightful response. When we know that our sin has been taken away, when we know that we can come into the very presence of God, when we understand that we have been delivered from the wrath of God as poured out through the judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will give thanks to him, and we will bless him. Now, it's interesting. Uh, the psalmist waits until the very end of the psalm to tell us why God is worthy of all of these things. Why does God deserve this kind of worship? Why does God deserve this kind of praise? Well, we're told in verse 5, it's because the Lord is good. And every English teacher in the room just cringed. Perhaps the most overused word in the English language is the word good. How are you today? Good. How was lunch? Good. How'd you sleep? Good. One of my favorite stories from when we were doing youth ministry, we went to a, a holiday. Uh, it was a it was a like a conference uh, in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. Uh, so they refer to that in in that part of the world as the Redneck Riviera. And we went for dinner with the kids who were with us, and we had a bunch of kids from South Louisville who hadn't traveled a whole lot, and so 
uh, we're at a restaurant and one of the kids is looking at the menu and he's like, I don't even know what this is. And the great irony here now is the young man I'm speaking of is actually a chef. Uh, he went on and he became a chef. And so he orders uh, a cheeseburger and the waitress looks at him and says, how do you want it cooked? He's never heard of rare or medium rare. So you know what his response was? I want it cooked good. Good is a horrible word to use. And yet the psalmist says the Lord is good. Really? Couldn't find another word? Well, Hebrew poetry, as we've gone through the psalms, we've seen it doesn't work like ours. It uses something called parallelism. So the psalmist makes a statement and then he amplifies the statement in subsequent verses to let us know exactly what it means. So when the psalmist says the Lord is good, he doesn't mean that the Lord is cooked medium well. No, when the psalmist says the Lord is good, he uses two other words to define and fill out and give color to what it means that God is good. He's good because he is the God of Hesed. When, in verse 5, when you see his steadfast love, it's the Hebrew word Hesed. So we worship God, we give God what he's due because he's good. Well, why is he good? He's good because he's a God of Hesed. He's a God of steadfast love. And that steadfast love, you'll note, endures forever. God does not go back on the promises that he makes. There's never one promise that God has made that you can look back on and go, well, okay, yeah, but that was to Noah. And at the end of the day, Noah was kind of a, you know, he gets drunk. and No. God keeps his covenant promises. Not only that, but we're told that God is a God of hesed and God is a God of faithfulness. And that faithfulness isn't just to the present moment. It's not just to the past, but that faithfulness is to all generations. God keeps, God remembers his covenant promises, and he does so through all generations. One of the reasons when I took church history in seminary, one of the reasons, because you're always wondering, Uh, particularly for people that don't like history in general, the question that was always asked is, uh, the professor, why do we have to take this particular class? Well, you have to take this particular class because it's required, but also we study church history because it reminds us that our God keeps and remembers his covenant promises. What am I missing? Yeah, I, it's yes. The wildlife is free range today, so that's good. Yeah. So, in just a moment, we're going to come to the table. And at the table, we're reminded of God's covenant faithfulness. At the table, God declares to us that He always keeps His promises, that He's faithful. The table also speaks to us of the relationship that we can have with God. A relationship made possible 
through the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a table also that points us to that wonderful day in which we can be citizens of that city in which we don't need a temple because we get to hang out with God the Father and with the Lamb. And we will be allowed to enter into that wonderful and glorious city. Let's pray together. Our Father, uh, thank you for the sound of people running. It's awesome. Uh, we, we love that. We love, again, you're faithful to all generations. And it is a joy uh, that for many folks here, there's three generations of individual families gathered together this morning, and we give you thanks for that. Lord, we do bless you that you desire a relationship with us, that you uh, use us. That, Father, we can know and be known, and we can have a relationship with you, uh, not characterized by guilt and fear, but characterized by joy. And so, Lord, we come this morning to your table, grateful for the way in which uh, you speak an assuring word to your people. And we bless you for the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray all these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.